Hey, welcome everyone to FF Plus, a spoiler-free outlet for movie reviews, entertainment recommendations, and discussion. I'm your host, Aaron, and with me for this episode, or at least the first half of this episode, is Feel and Film contributor, the man behind Every Movie Has a Lesson, and my friend Don Shanahan. Man, welcome back. It has been a hot minute since we have podcasted together. It has been a hot minute, a warm minute, cold minute, all the seasons of minutes. You are right. <laughs> you have, since the last time you were on this show, and I believe we were one of the first to ever get you behind a mic, but since then, you have seemingly become just the podcast extraordinary. I see you on all kinds of shows all the time with your Chicago colleagues. Yeah, it's it's been fun just to, especially now that we're all stuck at home, to kind of get on the mic, get on the camera, and talk a little bit more. I've been trying to help out with like a real politics series, just to do little talks here and there, and the teaching end of my thing can come out. And, and yeah, it's, I think that's the one way we try to find each other and still get some FaceTime instead of some hugging and high-fiving time that we would normally get in the press row. I don't know about you, but that's the one thing I miss about going to the movies is the people. I, I don't miss the prices, I don't miss the parking, I don't miss even sometimes the movies, but I miss the people. I do too. Yeah, we, we have some group chats with our fellow Seattle film critics as well. And the second half of this episode is actually a gentleman who's in the Seattle Film Critics Society with me. And yeah, it's been lonely. It's weird. that I, I didn't really think that I would miss those folks so much because sometimes your relationships aren't really that deep because you're right. just colleagues. But you start to understand, you know, you spend two nights a week with these people pretty mm -hmm. much every single week of your year and they becomes a, an emptiness to it when you don't get a chance to interact. So anyway, I'm glad we get to do this together. This new FF plus direction that we're taking things. These are definitely spoiler free thoughts on a couple of films that we've seen that are releasing this week. We're going to get started. So the first movie that we're going to talk about is called desert one desert one opens in select theaters and markets on august 21st and then it will be coming to video on demand on september 4th it's a documentary it's directed by two-time academy award winner barbara koppel so some really prestigious chops here for this one here's the synopsis using new archival sources and unprecedented access master documentarian barbara koppel reveals the story behind one of the most daring rescues in modern u.s history a secret mission to free hostages of the 1979 Iranian Revolution. So here's the thing. I went into this, and I'll be honest, Don, I said yes to covering this documentary because it had a helicopter, an army helicopter, on the cover of the poster. You, you best buy this one. Yeah. No, no, not best buy. You, you, you blockbustered this one. I did. Oh, That's exactly good. right. I'm going to pick the cover. I'll take this one home tonight. Exactly. I was window shopping and I said, you know what? I'm a war movie guy. This sounds great. It's got someone with some awards behind it. And, you know, I don't know what this story exactly is going to be about. I thought I knew what the 1979 hostage crisis was about because I've seen Argo. Mm -hmm. <laughs> but, uh, you know, we were just being born around that time, you and I. So we weren't really uh, old enough to have any idea about the politics of that era. Well, this documentary dives into something that's very unique. It is about this failed mission that occurred. The Carter administration put it together in order to try and save these hostages that have been taken in Iran. Um, and I'm going to run down, you know, a little real brief recap of what actually happens, what sets up the meat of this documentary. All right. Ayatollah Khomeini, who was in charge of Iran, uh, had this relationship with the U.S. 
And there was a revolution in 1978 and 1979 that uh, pushed, or I'm sorry, the Shah of Iran had a relationship with the United States. And there was a revolution in the 78 and 79 that pushed him out. And this cleric, Ayatollah Khomeini, who would rule for decades, ended up coming into power. Well, the Shah, who had this relationship with the U.S., fled to America for cancer treatment. And the U.S. refused to return him to Iran, where they wanted the Shah to face trial for crimes against their country. And that really just enraged these followers of Ayatollah Khomeini. And ultimately, what ended up happening is actually a bunch of students in Iran who were followers of him stormed the U.S. embassy and ended up taking 52 Americans hostage. So Jimmy Carter, at this time, is president, and he is up for re-election. This is coming up hot on the heels. Uh, Reagan is running against him, and Carter is basically what could be described as a pacifist. So he believes in peace first and pretty much at all costs. And so his first thought is, let's go with diplomacy. And he tries for a long time to to attempt to get the hostages back through peaceful means. And essentially, Khomeini and Iran are just very obviously aware of Carter because he's made these things very known. And they're not willing to give the hostages back because they don't have any fear that Carter's going to do anything to them. And so while this is playing out behind the scenes politically between the Carter administration and Iran, Reagan is simultaneously running for president under this platform saying, you know, Carter is wrong. We need to go get our guys. And so you can imagine what this was putting the American public through. You've got people on both sides. And what this documentary does is it essentially starts at this story. It tells what I just told you and uh, in a very interesting way. And then it just follows up to the point of this rescue mission that was going to occur. Carter signed off on it and these helicopters were going to be staged outside of Iran. These C-130s were going to come in, drop off some Delta Force guys. They were going to get in trucks. They were going to roll up into the embassy, blow the walls, get the hostages Get out. And everything you can imagine that could go wrong, Don, went wrong. And it was classified for a long time. But we're talking helicopters going down. We're talking C-130s blowing up. We're talking just unexpected Iranians in places they weren't wanting Iranians to show up. And it it resulted in loss of American soldiers' life uh, at times. And it just was a complete failure on every level. And ultimately... The story ends with us getting the hostages back, but not because of this mission. And it's just a really intriguing piece of history. And what I enjoy the most about the way that this documentary tells the story is that it uses kind of a mix of interviews and archival footage and also this animation style. So sometimes when you would... I was yeah. just going to ask the balance there because, I mean, when you have history this old, how many talking heads are still alive to tell the story? And, you know, and then how do you get that blend? But uh, I'm, I'm intrigued by what you're saying about the animations. Tell me more there. So with the actual interviews, not only did they interview Carter at times, they have some that. interviews with Carter. 
That's they have sense. interviews with quite a few of the military personnel that were part of this mission. And they have interviews with Iranians, hostage takers, and some of the Iranians that were involved in some incredible events that I'm not going to talk about that you need to discover for yourself. That was mind-blowing because she's able to get this story from both perspectives because there are Iranians on camera talking about how to this day they celebrate the moment that a sandstorm came and derailed this mission and saved their people from being infiltrated by the United States. You know what Amazing. I mean? So yeah. it is fascinating, right? To hear both, sides, right? both of that, those sides and, uh, and the animation aspect comes into play oftentimes when they're describing the mission itself. And I really it's found like it. They won't have footage for it. Right, right. Right, exactly. And it was kind yeah. of engaging because you would have someone describing, okay, the C-130 would take off from this aircraft carrier out in the Gulf, and then it would fly to this spot, drop here, do this, this, this. And they would show an animation of this happening or some of the tragic events that occurred. They would show animations to account for some of the horrific events mm. that were taking place because they don't have like a shootout. Instead yeah. of reenacting that with live action, they would show an example of what happened via this interesting animation style. And I, I liked it. You know, it kept me on my toes, kind of mixing up visually. I think that's the signature right there of someone who knows what she's doing. She's been doing exactly. this for 30 years. She's yeah. won awards and she knows how to keep the viewer like eyes on engaged at all times. But really the material itself for me was enough in and of itself. They even have audio footage of phone calls between president Carter and the mission commander as the mission is going south, which was Wow. It was wild to hear this. Wow. Like, this is totally classified stuff, right? It's, right? it's the stuff you see in movies where they call the president. But just to hear how a president is actually responding, sitting in the White House while a mission is happening, and yeah. especially how he responds when he gets told, listen, it's not going well. Things are not going to work out. And understanding as he's processing this, you know, this mission took place on day 174 of the hostage crisis. Wow. Which is a long time, right? And he knows what it's going to cost for him when it comes to his reelection. And it goes all the way through the story. The hostage crisis ended up lasting 444 days mm. that these men mm -hmm. were captives. These men and these women were captives. And uh, it's wild just watching how it all plays out and some of the pettiness involved, even when it comes to their release that took place. So I, I cannot recommend this enough and yeah, me in. just from a historical perspective from an entertainment perspective it's easily one of the best documentaries i've seen all year yeah. for me when it comes to documentaries the mvp is always the editor you know you have so much archival footage between like, talking heads and, and possibly the footage itself and the audio and all that and I, you know you see different documentaries in different places you know choose different ways to assemble that you know and to to add that layer of animation is sounds incredibly impressive because you can spend all day just doing only archival footage like we saw apollo 11 a year ago where it's just archival footage you know thousands of it stitched together for the best 95 minutes they can do and then you get something even older like i don't know if you've ever seen the uh, auto racing one uh, senna where that is all archival and voiced over this and that and very few talking heads or they they blend them into the the voiceover so um it, it to hear this kind of style and flow it sounds very impressive and then you layer the history into it and all that so yeah, you got me in on that. Um, did you? I, I can tell hearing your answers, you know, to your explanation to it that you definitely learned something about the topic. 
is this a good springboard for people before or after when they find something as, as accessible as Argo? You know, it made me want to rewatch Argo. Mm-hmm. I would say it's easily as entertaining as Argo. Yeah, I, it really is. I mean, it, to me, it's real. And I guess Argo is real, but it's dramatized. Mm-hmm. And it's a, a lot less of uh, an interesting mission. The thing that is a little weird is that nothing actually happens as far as the rescue. Like, it doesn't go wrong in Iran no. because they get taken out by Iranian forces. It goes wrong before they even get into the country to wow. run the mission. It's all of these like compounding effects from weather to mechanical failures to just miscommunications. It's all on the, our own side. And, you know, it just, it's just, it's amazing to me. This story is even being told because the one thing Americans don't like to do is talk about their failures. Quite true. And here we are, like, that's what this is highlighting, is a failure in American history where we didn't wow. get it right. And it has a happy ending, of mm-hmm. course, but that's history. But, okay. you know, it doesn't for everyone involved. There were people that were lost. And and for what gain? For, for mm-hmm. To try. And that was really what it highlighted, I think, is the heroism and the bravery involved in these Delta Force folks and these pilots, that they were just, they were there to try. They right. did not succeed. But it was that they made the attempt that was the, was the important thing. Well, that sounds compelling. I hope people find a good audience for it come Friday here, Aaron. Yeah, I'm excited for people to discover this one and hear what they think as well. Now, our next film that we're going to talk about is called The One and Only Ivan. It's very different. It's not very a docu- different. Very cuddly. <laughs> not a documentary. Not even real animals <laughs> in this case. No. And this is coming exclusively to Disney Plus on August 21st. It stars the vocal talents of Sam Rockwell, Angelina Jolie, Brian Cranston, actually the acting talents of Brian Cranston as well, Helen Mirren, Danny DeVito, and Philippa Sue of Hamilton fame, and is directed by Thea Sherrock. Synopsis, it's based on a novel or a children's book, I believe, and it's about a gorilla named Ivan who tries to piece together his past with the help of an elephant named Stella as they hatch a plan to escape from captivity sounds really interesting and compelling and yeah. adventurous now don my first question oh. i wanted to find out from you about what you thought of this film and you know for me the first thing that i thought of as i was watching this was how much it felt like an old disney family film like a so. witch mountain series movie or something like that something that i would have watched on the disney channel literally when i was growing up and i wondered you know did it hit that same kind of nostalgic feel for you or did it feel more like a cheap made for tv adaptation that wouldn't have fit on the theater i tell you what i think times have evolved where i think a lot of people are going to feel the latter i felt the former you know because you know we grew up like you said with with, you know, Wonderful World of Disney, we, we grew up with, you know, Smaller Fair, where this was the bread and butter for Disney for a long time, was all these live-action family films. They made as many of those as they, in fact, they made more of those than they ever did animated films. It feels like the this formula's been flipped today, where the big-ticket animated ones are the ones that win, and the, the little stuff, the Queen of Cutways, and the, the smaller, you know, million-dollar arm, those are the you know, the winter throw-ins, the late summer bonuses where they don't make them like they used to anymore. And maybe, and I don't, I know I don't have children your age where we watch a lot of Disney Channel or I've been, I haven't been through that generation of watching a lot of Disney Channel now. 
but something tells me that this is the kind of stuff that unfortunately likely lands uh, you know on the channel or now it's on disney plus so i'm bummed that this didn't get a theatrical spot but at the same time um the effects and artistry involved i think are elevated higher than what could have been just a cheap than a cheap tv thing so yeah i, I watch this i get nostalgia i watch this and get the appreciation of you know of david lowry bringing back peace dragon in that same kind of way of like hey we used to make movies like this let's make them even better now because we got some new tools and some new chops so that's interesting. I, you know, I feel, I guess, maybe a little bit less like that. I would make a clear distinction between the live action theatrical releases Disney has done for their live action remakes Disney has put out and then something like this. This felt a lot like last year's film Togo. I don't know if you okay. caught up with that one. I but... did not. I need to, though. Okay, so it's about a heroic sled dog. He doesn't talk, uh, <laughs> but it was so much just it felt like a not like a tv movie again it feels like a streaming movie okay. it feels like there's a new middle and yeah. there was nothing about ivan to me that screamed i need this on the big screen so much of the film is set you know in the back of the mm -hmm. circus area yeah. where the cages are kept and there's a lot of dialogue that takes place in there and there's just not a ton of action that goes on uh, outside true. of maybe some beautiful scenery at the end of the film when right. it opens up, but it's really in the confined spaces. And I was just like, this, this would have been kind of, I think a lot more boring for me on yeah. a big screen. I would have felt let down more so than I was. And I really enjoyed it. How did you feel about the movie as a whole? Did it suck you in? Did it win you over with its charm? Like, what'd you think about the story? Higher above average. You know, I wasn't, uh, I know you told me to prepare. You watched this before me. You told me to prepare, get tissues, be ready. Uh, and I was, I'm like, all right, dang, I'm, I'm ready for tissues. I can, I can use some tissues right now. Or a, a movie that can do that to me. And, uh, I admit I was close, didn't reach full Pixar punch. No, I, I was happy. Uh, an admirable adaptation of the book. Um, a nice, I, I love your word of middle, you know, and maybe that is a missing thing that Disney hasn't had in a while where, it's either really cheap and crappy because we just throw direct, you know, direct TV sequels, or it's mega huge because of the big screen stuff they have now. So I, I was very happy with competent middle. Uh, the charm was there. Sam Rockwell is a fantastic voice. I'll, I'll watch him talk about anything. Brian Cranston in the warm, cuddly version of Brian Cranston is just as engaging to me as when he can be something mean and bigger. And uh, yeah, like I got sucked in because um, I'm one of those guys that kind of believes that, I don't know. Maybe it's wishy-washy me, maybe it's heretic of me, but uh, I do think animals somewhere deep down kind of have souls. And even though this is dramatically forced to portray that louder and bigger by giving them voices and all that, mm -hmm. I really do like, I sit here and I enjoy those viral YouTube videos, a gorilla that rescues a kid that falls into the paddock or a dog that laments over a, their owner's grave or just all those little things you see, those shreds of evidence that say there's more to them than just meat and skin and food, you know? So I'm encouraged and, and, and emboldened and impressed when those things can be done in a cute way where I know you said, get your kids ready and you know, bring them together to watch this movie. I didn't yet, but uh, I think I, now I, I'm the parent who's going to screen it first, but I think I could put my kids in front of this and they would get a great kick out of it. Yeah, I really enjoyed it. I thought it was sweet. It was yeah. incredibly simple and incredibly accessible for, and that's why I recommended it. Your kids are much younger mm -hmm. than my teenagers and my teens enjoyed it and we got to enjoy it. I think at maybe a different 
in a different way than someone who has toddlers would be able to enjoy it. I think you would have kids that would really latch on to just the cuteness of the animals and maybe the sadness of the animals expressing their feelings and their want to, you know, be free. Mm -hmm. There's so much cute dialogue between the different animals, between Ivan the gorilla and this baby elephant and this uh, dog (laughs) that is Mm -hmm. one of my favorite characters, Bob. Anyway, um, just all these different animals that talk to each other. And then there's a little girl who I think is representative of most of us and how we wish we could have a relationship with that same gorilla, right? It's the same kind of feeling as there's this little girl sitting outside of Ivan's cage talking to him, believing that he can accomplish great things. And it reminds me of how I talk to my cats, to be honest, right. you know? <laughs> and so now, in a movie setting, in a movie setting, talking animals can be a very hit or miss. How was this for you? You know, I don't love it. I don't think it was perfect. I yeah. was taken out of the film quite a bit because of Sam Rockwell's voice. While Sam Rockwell okay. is great, I love Sam Rockwell to death. It was Sam Rockwell, and it wasn't Ivan That's the Gorilla true. for me. Mm-hmm. And I almost wish it had been voices that I'd never heard before because I think I would have allowed myself to maybe get a little bit more immersed into those characters. Unfortunately, I just kept seeing their faces and Mm -hmm. who they were and specifically him more so than any of the others. Danny DeVito as well, a little bit because you know, it's DeVito because you know, it's DeVito. And so that, uh, that always has bothered me. It kind of messed with me a little bit in Doolittle as well. You know, I was like, oh, okay, I know who that is. I know who that is. And when I'm worried about trying to figure out who's doing the voice, I'm not as locked into the emotional beats of the story. Did it kind of distract you at all, or were you pretty, were you able to kind of push it to the side? Um, I mean, DeVito's your, your, your pot splasher there. Like, you, you can't help but that's DeVito being DeVito. I was okay with Sam. You know, Sam, you know, the loquacious version of Sam that we normally get in a lot of movies where he's a motor mouth. I was happy he tamed that down. And just was a more wholesome version of Sam. So I was okay there. Angelina Jolie was wonderful. I had no idea she had such mature grace. You know, we've heard her in, you know, Kung Fu Panda and different places playing a, you know, strength, but I've never heard grace out of her. And that was really cool. But no, it can still get a little, luckily, I have to admit the side characters were at a minimum where between DeVito, your elephants and and Rockwell's gorilla, that's kind of all you had. And then the other ones just kind of show up when they had their little bits and gags. And that was small enough that it wasn't distracting. It wasn't, it wasn't Kung Fu Panda where it's a cast of thousands. Yeah. No, I agree. Actually, it's a great comparison because her work in Kung Fu Panda is more obvious to me than it was here. Like, I didn't, Angelina right. disappeared into the role more than anyone else, in my opinion, as Agreed. far as voice acting goes. Now, did you know that this was, did you, first of all, did you ever read the book? No, I know of the book, never read it though. Okay, so I didn't know of the book either, didn't know of the story, uh, was able to kind of be wowed and surprised by the direction and some of the things that Ivan displays about his character throughout. And, you know, I'm actually going to bail on my last question I have in my notes because I've decided that I think as much as I want us to talk about this certain aspect of the film, I did not know something going in and I was surprised when I watched the credits to learn this thing and it enhanced my viewing. And so I'm going to leave it off and I'm going to allow audiences to experience this for themselves. Uh, So I think what I'll say is this, make sure you just watch through the credits. There's Mm -hmm. 
some additional information given about the making of the film that I think is enhancing for it yeah. uh, and and really cool. And it made me want to learn more, maybe well, want to read more. Same here. If you say, hey, based on a true story, enjoy it from there, you know, extrapolate where you can from that. That's that's enough to give people is that you're right. You have a nice, wholesome story. You have good actors having good parts. And you uh, you said it again. You have a nice medium movie, and sometimes medium fits just fine. I think so. And specifically with Mulan right around the corner mm -hmm. and Disney's hey. continued pushing of their films to their platform, whether it's just for COVID reasons or whether it becomes the norm, I think you're going to have little, little different levels of film, mm -hmm. and that's how that platform is going to be successful because it can't yeah. all be the stuff for adults. No. And that's where I think this movie lives is it's it's fine for adults. It's fun, but it mm -hmm. is meant for families and for yes. for kids. And it's not it's that middle ground. Again, it's that yeah. middle ground of family, of togetherness that you can go watch and you can sit there at home. You already have your subscription. Put it mm -hmm. on on Friday night, pop some popcorn and have a good time. And it will yeah. remind you of the old days. I hope Disney keeps diversifying this middle like they've done. Like Star Girl, which is more for teens, but middle, like that would never have a shot in the big screen. Togo, maybe a slightly older kid than the, than something like the the one and only Ivan, and you know Timmy Failure. So they've been making some middle movies. I just hope they can keep diversifying. So yep, so I agree. It's an underserved place. Agreed. Well, Don, where can people find your work online if they want to give you a follow and check out your review of this film and others? You bet. Uh, search your social media tags, whether it's Twitter, Facebook, or otherwise. Every movie has a lesson. Everymoviehasalesson.com for the full website and all that. I'm a staff writer. I'm 25YL. Can't help but put a whole bunch of work into that as well. So uh, those are the two drops I got to put in here. Awesome, man. Well, thank you for joining me. I really appreciate it. Thank you for having me, Aaron. All right, listeners. Well, now we're going to get into the second half of this episode with a couple of more reviews. And for these films, I have my colleague and friend Mark Morin from the Seattle Film Critics Society and the 206 here with me for the first time ever on the show, man. How are you doing? I'm so glad to have you. I'm doing really well. I'm glad to be here. Like you said, first time ever. Let's do this. Yes, absolutely. Mark is also a podcaster. Uh, he's a writer. I will let him plug his stuff for you at the end and give you guys a chance to go check out all of his great work. Films we're going to be talking about today, we're just going to go ahead and dive right in. The first one is called Tesla, and this is going to be in theaters, select theaters, and video on demand simultaneously on August 21st. It stars Ethan Hawke as the titular Nikola Tesla, Hannah Gross, Eve Hewson, Kyle MacLachlan as Thomas Edison, his rival, and Jim Gaffigan. It is directed by Michael Almereda. I don't know if I said that right, but I'm going to say that's close enough. The synopsis, synopsis for this biopic is that this is a freewheeling take on visionary inventor Nikola Tesla, his interactions with Edison and J.P. Morgan's daughter, Anne, and his breakthroughs in transmitting electrical power and light. Now, what I take out of that synopsis, Mark, is the word freewheeling, <laughs> because yes, yes. this film was not necessarily what I was expecting. So first of all, the poster for this movie is drenched in neon. Yeah. Um, it looks a lot like the poster for Nerve or Ingrid Goes West, something with a lot right, of right. energy, right? Yeah. And when you think about Tesla, you think about energy. And this biopic is not traditional. It, it has 
some surreal sequences, but yet it plays a lot of it straightforward, like a period piece. And these weird, just, they call it visionary, but it's like really awkward injections of modern cultural way of trying to get across a concept is thrown into this at random times. And it was really interesting. And and so, you know, this movie is indie to a T. It is independent. It is not following a set formula for a biopic like you've seen before. And so I'm just going to ask you, like, how did this mixture work for you? I will just say it did not, <laughs> okay. unfortunately. <laughs> and really, you know, you described it really well. It's It's not your ordinary biopic by any means. It's intentionally off the beaten path, out of the ordinary, however you want to describe it that way. But none of it really worked for me. It's a lot of it seemed like I was watching that somebody had filmed a high school stage play, you know, with the backgrounds. And, and some of that was intentional with the different type of backgrounds instead of like being out in an elaborate, you know, setting and stuff like that. But I don't know, the whole time of the movie, I was just like, this is not working for me. And every time some other out of the ordinary concept was added into it, I just kept having that same thought. So unfortunately, really none of the movie worked for me on any level whatsoever. Yeah. That's really really the best way. I'm right there with you, man. I like, you know, I'm looking at you right now on Skype and I'm looking at you and you have this gorgeous star Wars background behind you. And it's reminding me of the movie because you mentioned these backgrounds that really stuck out to me. I was hoping that wasn't just my eyesight. There there were, they were almost like stage backgrounds, right? Like a painting of a hilly, you know, area or of a train. At one point someone steps off of a train and I could have sworn that the train was just like a big wall mural. Right. And it's shot as if this person, I don't know if that was, supposed to be some sort of surreal like way in which they were getting something across if it was intentionally trying to cut budget and make this on the cheap i don't know what they were going for i I couldn't figure that out either the biopic is narrated by ann morgan who to me was actually an interesting character i didn't know about this part of tesla's life so I, i wasn't aware of his romance with J.P. Morgan's daughter. That was interesting, you know, because I know who J.P. Morgan is, but I didn't know that he'd had this experience, but it's all from her point of view. And so, you know, she tells this story and at times she will specifically tell something and tell a lie and we will watch an inaccurate version of events play out. And then she'll just walk it back and be like, oh no, but that's not what happened. And then she'll tell it straightforward. And it was so awkward for me just to watch this stylistic, like, smorgasbord of things kind of like it was like it felt like a Jackson Pollock painting, like somebody was just throwing paint in different colors and hoping it would create art. (laughs) And that's the thing is right off the bat, I think it was one of the very first scenes, if not the first scene, is one of those instances that you're talking about between Tesla and Edison with the whole ice cream cone thing, which right off the bat, I was like, this is so weird. And then that scene plays out. And then just like you described, it's re-narrated back and played a completely different way. And now I'm just like, why did I have to witness that first scenario to begin with? And then the second scenario, which what we're supposed to be believing is the reality 
was nowhere near as interesting or weird or off the beaten path as what we just saw. So it totally lost that impact as well. And I was just like, what's happening right now? So that's how they set the tone of the of the whole movie. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. When when they had the ice cream fight, I was like, are you trying to sell me on Thomas Edison and Nikola Tesla's age old historical like rivalry being based on an ice cream food fight? And then right. she, you know, like you said, she walks it back and you realize it's really over money <laughs> at right. the beginning. And then it's just two guys that have differing views on what kind of current to use. Right. The other thing about this biopic is it is insanely science heavy. Yep. And frankly, I didn't get a lot of it. I have some schooling in electrical technology from years and years ago. So I understand alternating current and direct current a little bit, but the way in which it's described in this movie did nothing to make me understand it fully. Uh, It it really lost me in some of its weightiness of the way that it describes it. I will say that one scene that stuck out to me that taught me something was they do cover a sequence where Tesla's invention is used, his alternating current machine is used for the first ever electric chair execution. Mm. And I went back and looked this up on Wikipedia. And sure enough, Mark, this is actually to a T what happened. It it gives it to us just like the history books say, right down wow. to the exact quotes and dialogue spoken by the deceased. Um, and, and I really found that interesting. And I was like, man, you know, that's what I look for in a biopic is I want to right. learn. I want that kind of thing. So either teach me or try to get me to feel something. But whatever you were doing here was just this weird mashup. And I was not a fan. And I am a super right. Ethan Hawke fan. And I thought this was a terrible performance and not necessarily right. maybe not performance. I think it was a terrible. Yeah, it was a terrible performance. I guess it has to go on him too. Right. whatever the director was asking him to do and how he portrayed Tesla it just did not resonate for me at all right and i thought the same thing about kyle mclaughlin mclaughlin too playing edison it was a very exactly one note performance throughout the entire you know there's like isn't there a couple decades that happen and he's in the exact same mood the entire time that we see over the course of the movie It, it was just weird to me it really really was yeah, it doesn't sound like either one of us recommend Tesla <laughs> all that much. I guess right, right. if what we're so- talking about sounds really intriguing to you, because there's always an audience for every film. Let's right. admit that uh, somebody out there is not going to fall asleep to this one. But so far, both of us and some of the other critics in the Seattle Film Critics Society who I've talked to, nobody really dug this one. And right. it's probably best to, to skip it. Yep. Well, the other film that we're going to talk about is a lot more exciting, if nothing else, and that is Peninsula, or I should say Train to Busan Presents Peninsula. (laughs) We'll get into that later. Exactly. So Peninsula is hitting theaters on August 21st. No VOD simultaneously as right now. So this is a movie that is actually going to run the gamut, go to some drive-ins and go out into theaters, places around the world where it's able to do that. It stars... Dong Wan Gong, Jung Hyun Lee, Ri Lee, Ray Lee, I don't know, and directed by Sang Ho Yeon. Uh, I probably got those terribly wrong, but we're going to say close enough. Again, uh, the synopsis is that, you know, it, it hails itself as a sequel to the 2016 South Korean zombie film Train to Busan. And it says it is about a soldier and his team as they battle hordes of post-apocalyptic zombies in the wastelands of the Korean peninsula. 
here's the thing. First things first. <laughs> this is much more like a spinoff than a sequel. And I think it's important that we set that tone right away. These are spoiler-free reviews, so we're not going to tell you exactly what happens in the plot. But you need to understand that the best example I could give, Mark, is when the movie chose to bill itself as Train to Busan Presents Peninsula. It is doing the same thing as Fast and Furious presents Hobbs and Shaw. Right. It is taking a thing that is exciting and interesting in genre, but has a real underlying emotion to it. And it's sort of not playing that up as much. And it's going much more for a blockbuster feel. So how, for you, do you see this movie as being both different and or the same as Train to Busan. And does it satisfy what you were looking for in a see quote unquote sequel? You know, that's a really good question. There's a lot of thought that I had before I watched it. There's a lot of thoughts I was having while I was watching it. And then there's a lot of thoughts that I had after I watched it. And the main thing going in was I, I, as you know, I am a super fan of Train to Busan. I absolutely love the movie, seen it several times. So there was a part of me that was like, do not set that as the expectation level, like pull it back, tone it down. So I was going in expecting somewhat less. And to me, it's still a really good movie. I was highly satisfied with it. And you're totally right. It's more of a blockbuster action kind of a military style instead of the everyman family dynamic that we saw in Train to Busan. It's very loosely connected to Train to Busan, as you were saying, in the fact that it's in that same world, but it's completely different characters, completely different story, which is fine. I think the whole Train to Busan presents tag to the title, people should understand that's purely a marketing move because of the name familiarity with Train to Busan. And so while it is in that world, you're not going to be like, okay, we're picking up right where we left off and here we go with some more. But overall, I feel that the movie with the expectations that I had, I feel that it worked for me and I really enjoyed it because even though it was different, the director still had some of the state, the emotional touchstones that he hit in Train to Busan. I feel that in Train to Busan, he hit them better but I still feel that there's a similar feel to it while he was telling a different story. Yeah, I definitely agree that the attempt is there. And I think that part of why I was unable to connect in the same way I did with Train to Busan is because Train to Busan is a movie that is very contained and claustrophobic and really centered around just a few survivors and while this is sort of centered around a few survivors it leans much more into it's kind of like a mixture of mad max fury road and the fast and the furious series in the train to buzan post-apocalyptic world and right. so there's it's just it's much bigger it's much more wide open it really does lean into the idea of humans are worse than the zombies and so you get these factions that the survivors the plot of this I'll, I'll expand on it just a little bit for the listeners what what is happening here is we are four years later down the road after the zombie outbreak and the un tells us that or some some 
people who are some English speaking people who I feel like are there just to pander to the audience because there's way more. There's no English speaking in Train to Busan whatsoever. But in this movie, it's sprinkled throughout. And like it's like there's always a character that speaks English for some reason. And there's this English guy in Hong Kong who sends like four survivors uh, from Korea back into the peninsula where the zombies are. It's been quarantined off and they are sent in to uh, get $20 million that's just sitting there and bring it back out. So it's very generic plot in that you're trying to go into this post-apocalyptic world and make money off of it. And when they get there, it's Mad Max-like. They find that there are these you know, survivors who've set up entire world for themselves that's not so great in a lot of ways. And there are other survivors who are on the outside of the quote-unquote society that has been established. And so we get to see the interplay of those things. And, you know, it, it works to an extent. I agree. There are some interesting things. For me, the emotional aspects of it and the characters, I didn't get enough character development in the beginning. And then in the end, when some of those emotional beats that I feel like are very similar to what happened in Train to Busan, when that starts to happen, I feel like they're over-dramatized here. It's like everything is bigger about this movie, even that moment, right? When I was talking to you offline, you described this as a very typical Asian blockbuster. Can you tell me what that means? Maybe that'll help people understand what they're in for. Yeah, and this is mainly for South Korean cinema and Chinese cinema, is when they make blockbusters, it's all about the excess of that blockbuster kind of aesthetic is the best way to put it. And the one thing you and I touched on was in our offline conversation is the special effects. And especially in these two countries specifically, they don't care about getting it perfect and photorealistic and, you know, the highest quality possible. They just get it done. Sometimes it looks kind of cheesy. Sometimes it looks a little too like bold and colorful and over the top but they don't care. That's part of what they're going for. And that was a distinct difference for me. Train to Busan felt more like a legitimate stand toe-to-toe with any Hollywood blockbuster, just the look and feel of it. Whereas this one, uh, Peninsula, it feels more like specifically a South Korean or Chinese over-the-top, splashy-style blockbuster. So I think that's really the best way I can point to the difference is the visual aspect of it is just like splash it on the screen as much as possible and don't worry that you get it you know perfect and photorealistic it's interesting I would agree wholeheartedly that's what we got and so it's a matter of whether or not people are going to like that the CGI is not good it is by American standards by what Hollywood standards what we're used to it is arguably bad and at times yet I will say though that I found the framing of the shots, the action shots that are very fast and furious. Like there's a lot of driving in this one. Some of the ways in which those are shot. I like what the director had envisioned. I don't like the CGI, but I like the concept of some of those scenes and some of the ways in which early on the survivors that are sent in to get the money kind of find these other people. There's a lot of cool little technological 
creative things that we learn about that, you know, these people have had to develop over the last four years in order to stay safe and deal with the zombies around them. That was fun to see. I always like that. The movie was a little dark for me. I thought it was way too dark. The whole time is it's one of those movies where it's like we're going in for a single night to do a thing. And so the whole film has a darkness to it that didn't help for me because, you know, it was just harder to differentiate characters at times. Um, But yeah, you know, it just it just didn't feel like Train to Busan as much for me. Even the zombies, I didn't get the same sense of fear from the zombies. And it's probably because the humans had guns. This, this is a movie where they've got all got guns. In Train to Busan, there's no guns. There's, you know, one guy or two with a baseball bat at times. Um, one of my favorite moments in Train to Busan is when they've got to get through the car of zombies to get to their loved ones. And the three oh, yeah. men just just basically wrap their body in everything, every piece of clothing that they can and padding because they can't get bit. Right. That sort of grounded nature of like how you're going to deal with zombies, that was not present in this movie at right, all. Exactly. Um, so much bigger than that. And anything else stick out to you about this one? In referencing the visual aspect of it, you know, I want to take it back to what I was saying earlier about when I started watching the movie and I saw what it was and I accepted that that's what it was going to be, kind of reframe the expectation. One of the thoughts that I had was that I wish I could see this the way it is visually at a drive-in. Specifically, I think it would actually look way better than so you fair. and yeah, you and I have watched it on you know at home, sitting at our desk or in our living room. I watched it you know partly on my TV and partly on my laptop with a watermark. Think, yeah, exactly. You know, looking at my name or my email address on the on part of the screen. Yeah, I think in a drive-in setting is where I would really love to see it because I think it would play so well. And I'm curious to see how it would play in a you know multiplex theater screen as well. It might turn out to be a little bit better. So yes, we're nitpicking at the CGI and the special effects, but I think it could work to its advantage depending on how you're actually watching it. Yeah, it's getting an IMAX release, if I'm not mistaken. Right. So you know, I would actually agree with you there. That's a good point. That it's one of those movies that it's hard to watch a blockbuster on a screener at home. It's not something we typically do. Right. right. Because we would be in the theater screening this movie and we would be able to have a more accurate opinion of it for you if the pandemic wasn't going on. So, yeah, you're actually that's a great, great point, Mark, because I, I think you're right. Um, You know, and I sound pretty negative about it. <laughs> it's because my expectations were so high. Right. And, and this is always what's going to be a problem with sequels or films in series that you go into or adaptations of something you already love where you want certain thing, you want more of that certain thing and it just doesn't give you the same thing. And so it's like you said, it's so hard to find that adjustment. So I think I would like it more on rewatch. I didn't dislike it. I enjoyed it. I mean, it's like a three star film for me, which is good. It means that I didn't hate it and I had a fine time watching it. I would not recommend it. I would say, check it out if you're at all interested. I just think that it's important that your expectations are set. And, And I'm hoping that we can do that for folks. Uh, because, you know, I didn't have that going in. And so right. maybe now someone who's listened to this will go into it with the different expectations and will be able to enjoy it more because they're free of expecting it to be the same very emotional, parental, sacrificial type of tight-knit story that Train to Busan was um, and just kind of like it for that 
<laughs> I told you, I felt like you, you mentioned Armageddon as a comparison of like the sort of blockbuster. And I was like, yeah, it's like Armageddon, but turned up to 11. Um, and that's <laughs> yeah. like, and that's why Armageddon already is at 10. And yeah. then it goes, you know, plus 11. So <laughs> it, that's what you're looking for here yeah. when you go see Peninsula, folks. Well, the other thing I would add to that is the people who are going to be into this movie are into zombie movies, horror movies, all the that type of stuff. So I feel like visually and storytelling wise, it fits a little bit better into that typical genre fare than Train to Busan did. Like to me, Train to Busan is so elevated above the genre. It's it's in every possible way in the the special effects, the drama, the emotion. You know, I told you like at the end of it, I had tears. Train to Busan. You know, it's it's that type of movie. It's just, it, to me. It's one of my absolute favorite movies of the last, well, it came out, what, three, four years ago now? Yep. And it, it ranks very high if, if I put that year to now, on maybe top five. But you're right. Peninsula is good. It's enjoyable. And it very much fits in a very nice way within those genre expectations. So, yeah, it's, it, it's very easy to pick it apart when it's compared to Train to Busan. But when you put it up against other similar films, I think it stands up very well. Well said. Well, we're going to end on that because that's a high note. And I like positivity <laughs> on this show whenever we yeah. can get it. Well, Mark, where can people find you online if they want to chat or if they want to check out your content and your review of these two movies as well as others? Yeah, absolutely. So my website, that's like home base. It's 206.com spelled out. So T-W-O-O-H-S-I-X.com. All of my social media, Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, is at the 206, spelled out the same way. I also have the podcast, which is on anchor.fm, and then the 206 is you know, anchor.fm slash the 206. So pretty consistent. If you just search 206 spelled out like I just did, you're, you're bound to find me online. And yeah, more than welcome to hit me up, send me a message, say, you know, shoot me an email or whatever you want to do. Be happy to chat and just check out the site and the podcast. Thanks for Thanks for your time. Great, man. Appreciate you being here. I'm hopeful that you will be back as we do more of these. And <laughs> like we said, this is the first time, so that means there's going to be more. That's right. We're just putting <laughs> it out into the universe, what we want, right? Absolutely. No, thanks for having me, Aaron. This has been a, a great time. I've really enjoyed it. You and I have been talking about doing this for a while, so I'm really happy that we were finally able to make this happen. Me too, man. Thanks a lot. Thank you. Hey, everyone. Thanks again for listening. If you enjoyed the show, we'd love to hear from you. You can leave us a review on iTunes or wherever you're listening. These help increase visibility for the show and grow our community of listeners like you. We also invite you to connect with us further by joining our ever-growing Facebook discussion group. A link to that is in the show notes, or you can just search on Facebook and find us that way. If you'd like to continue the conversation with me, you can follow the show on Twitter at Film, or connect with me in the Facebook group. I'm very active in both places, and I'd love to chat. And if you want to connect with me, you can find me at Shoeless Patch on both Facebook and Twitter. But be sure to tag me in any comments so that I'll be notified and not miss you. Once again, thank you for listening. We'll be back soon. Until then, stay positive. And keep feeling film.